This morning, we are pressing on in our study in John chapter 8, and today's focus is the concept of belief. Seems like a relatively simple thing. We all think we know what belief is, but what does it mean to believe Jesus? What does it mean to believe Jesus, and is there a type of belief in him that in the end will not save you? Those are the questions we're going to be asking and answering this morning. Now, belief is a hard topic for many people today. And the reason for that is because our culture is so narcissistic and so wrapped up in feelings above everything else. So whenever the concept of belief or faith comes up in an everyday conversation, the average person is prone to ask a question like, well, let me ask you, is this belief of yours, is it going to make you a better person? Which honestly isn't a bad question. It could be worse. Someone might ask, does it make you feel good about yourself? these things that you believe? Or does it meet some felt need in your life, this faith system that you have? But the first and foremost and most important question we should be asking when it comes to belief is, is it true? Is it true? Does it correspond with reality? And if so, what is the evidence and the logic that you would put forward to make a claim that something is true? But sadly, the the question of truth rarely comes up in conversations these days because of the way we think. We think in terms of, well, your truth and my truth and that guy's truth and that lady's truth, and maybe there is no truth whatsoever. And people love to speak in those terms because it allows them to justify almost anything. They can do whatever they please and then just say, well, that's my truth. And how dare you question it? Because all truth is relative, right? So it it feeds our narcissistic impulse. But as I've shared before, having that type of postmodern worldview, while it's certainly convenient at some times, it's almost impossible to live out. I say that, for example, when a postmodernist is on a plane and they're about to land at an airport, they want to make sure that the air traffic controller understands what reality is, not just what he thinks is true. That's a bad way to approach life. Or when he goes in for surgery, the postmodern, just like you and me, he wants to make sure that that surgeon has a really good idea of what is true and what isn't true. So postmodernists have, a very, they have very definite convictions when it serves them, but ironically, they're often very critical of people who disagree with them, which means they think somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Go figure. Now, Jesus was a man who proclaimed both himself and his message as the truth. The truth. As much as people today want to dance around the idea that there is a single truth about the world, as much as certain groups want to grab onto Jesus and, and, and use his words as they see fit to, to sort of further their agenda, you cannot get around the fact that Jesus never wavered or wobbled on the distinction between truth and falsehood. He never did. And not only that, he was perfectly willing to do the one thing that our culture says you should never do. He pointed to people and said, you're wrong. (laughs) You believe in something that is false. And that is anathema in our culture today. But Jesus did it. You're wrong. You hold to a false belief system. But here's the thing. In the real world, when you make a claim to know that something is true, by default, you are communicating to people who hold a different view that they're wrong. Or what they believe is false. Otherwise, you're not standing on truth. And Jesus thought that doing that was of the utmost importance to make those distinctions for a very good reason because eternal life and eternal death are at stake. And there's no better reason to stand up and say this is true and this is not true. 
So grab your Bibles. Let's look at this some more. Let's look at John chapter 8. Go to John 8 and look at verse 30. Oh, it's already on the screen. Way to go, guys. Nicely done. John chapter 8. Only seven verses today. I have pushed you guys so hard in the last two Sundays, biting off these giant chunks. And I said to the elder team this week, we're going to slow it down and just go seven verses. Let's remember where we left off last Sunday. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. The the Feast of Tabernacles has just concluded, and he's been in the middle of this very contentious back and forth with the Pharisees, who are part of a crowd of Jews in the temple courts. And among other things, Jesus has made this amazing, startling statement, I am the light of the world. And it all unraveled after that, the discussion, right? The Pharisees began snapping at Jesus and accusing him of things, and mocking him, trying their best to discredit him in front of these crowds in the temple courts. And at the very end of the passage, we briefly looked at it last Sunday, verse 30, John reports something that you would not expect to hear based on the scenario, based on what's just happened. He says in verse 30, as Jesus spoke these things, many came to believe in him. You're like, really? From that situation, all this back and forth, heated debate, many people believed in him. Now look at that word believe, it's pistuo in the Greek, it's the the common word that we have for believing. Throughout the New Testament you see the same word. Now it can mean belief that saves in an eternal sense or it can refer to something less than that. It can refer to a person who hears a teaching and says, okay, I believe that that's true or that's persuasive to me. It can mean either one of those things. In other words, it can, this word can refer to a temporary intellectual agreement with something. So the question for for us in this text, what did John intend to communicate to us about the belief of these people in verse 30? Did these Jews in the temple courts that day genuinely believe in Jesus in a saving way? And more importantly, what did Jesus think about it? How did he treat this concept of belief. Well, let's take a look. Look at verse 31. We're going to get our answer. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, same word in the Greek, believed, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So there's our answer. As we've seen throughout John's gospel, Jesus knows the hearts of those that he is speaking to. And in this case, he recognizes, yeah, there are some people in this crowd who at the very least have come to an intellectual agreement with the things that I've said. And then he says, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, he says, look, that's a great start. But if you truly want to be a disciple of mine, then you must continue in my word. Don't just give me a one-time, temporary, I agree with that, continue in my word. Now we'll come back to what that phrase means later, but first notice that Jesus is concerned about this. He's concerned that these people might just stop at temporary intellectual belief. The type of faith that doesn't progress and then eventually fades away over time. So what he says here is both a warning and an invitation. The warning is this, if your initial agreement with my teaching doesn't progress and move forward to something that you continue in, then you are not my disciple. And at the same time, his invitation is real. Continue in my word, and you will prove that you truly are my disciple. Both a warning and an invitation. Now, Jesus' concern about temporary belief is obviously well founded. We've already seen this 
multiple times in John's gospel, this idea that, that people, that they have a belief that springs up in a moment when they see something or hear something, but then over time, it fades away, it disappears. We saw it back in chapter two, remember? Jesus is doing this string of miracles and John reports that, quote, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And we call that sign faith for obvious reasons. They, they saw amazing things and they said, I believe. But then John said that Jesus didn't entrust himself to those people. Why? Because he knew it was in their hearts. He knew it was just temporary. It was superficial. It wasn't real saving faith. Those people wanted something from Jesus, more food, more miracles, they didn't want to follow after him, and Jesus knew that. Now, you might say, well, that's sort of understandable. Had we been there, we'd have probably reacted the same way. It's an amazing thing to see miracles, right? So we might write that one off in chapter 2 and say, not such a big deal. But then we came to chapter 6, and we saw a very similar situation to what we just are reading about here in chapter 8, where, again, Jesus makes a startling statement. He said here in 8, I'm the light of the world. Back in 6, he said, I'm the bread of life. And then he went on to compare himself to the manna that had come from heaven that God sent, the wilderness generation. And he talked about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and that was all too much for the people that were following him at that time. John reports that many disciples walked away. That was just too hard. The cost was too high. Their temporary enthusiasm for his teachings, their temporary belief in his teachings, they went flying out the window. They did not continue in Jesus' word. That was chapter 6. So what John's doing here in chapter 8 is what I described last week. This is typical of John's style. What he does is he, he keeps pounding the same theme over and over again, circling back to it constantly, right? Each time putting on another layer, going just a little bit deeper so that we, his audience, can understand what he's trying to emphasize. And what he's trying to show us here is this. It's possible to have a superficial, temporary belief in Christ that will not save you. Chapter 2, chapter 6, now chapter 8. A temporary superficial belief in Christ that will not save. That's a serious thing that we should all take really seriously this morning. Other New Testament passages, as you know, support the same view. The parable of the sower is the most obvious one, right? Where the word is at first received by people with joy, but then it never develops any deep root, does it? It springs up fast, but it doesn't develop a root. So it eventually shrivels up and it dies. Or a belief that seems genuine, but then temptations come and trials come and the person falls away because this, this very superficial faith that they're holding on to, it can't, it can't live under the weight of those temptations and those trials. It can't be sustained under that type of duress. We see the same scenario in all the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Read Hebrews 6, it'll blow you away, right? where the Jews are being warned not to shrink back from that initial ascent to truth because of cultural and religious pressure. Don't go back. Jesus is greater than anything that you'll go back to, is the theme of the book of Hebrews. So this is, happens over and over again in the New Testament. We see the same emphasis. Now, A.W. Pink, some of you guys know him, wrote extensively on this subject. I'm going to put a quote on the screen that's really important. He addressed this question of why do some types of belief eventually fall short of saving a person. Here's what he wrote. Boom. He said, with many, it's because they are willing for Christ to save them from hell, but are not willing for him to save them from self. 
They want to take him as Savior, but are unwilling to subject themselves unto him as their Lord. They want to be delivered from the wrath to come, but they wish to retain their self-will and their self-pleasing. But he will not be dictated to. You must be saved on his terms or not at all. He goes on. Again, many are never saved because they wish to divide Christ. If they're prepared to own him as Lord, it's not as an absolute Lord. Ooh, now we're getting close, aren't we here? Not as an absolute Lord. But this cannot be. Christ will either be Lord of all or he will, be Lord, he will not be Lord at all. But the vast majority of professing Christians would have Christ's sovereignty limited at certain points. It must not encroach too far upon the liberty which some worldly lust or carnal interest demands. His peace they covet, but his yoke is unwelcome. Finishes up, he says, The very essence of sin is the determination to have my own way. Where Christ saves, he subdues this spirit of self-will and implants a genuine, powerful, lasting desire and determination to please him. And that's really where the hope is on that last sentence, right? That when we're truly saved, Christ changes our nature to want to please him. Charles Cranfield, another British theologian, addressed the importance of, of having evidence that shows that your profession of faith lines up with your life. Here's what he wrote. He wrote, a key word in James 2.14 is the word says. If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? James contends that such a claim must be tested. Without a life that supports the claim, he says that type of faith is dead. But he does call it faith because the one who professes it thinks he has faith. But James' point is, is that it's a counterfeit or a false faith. So let us not be deceived by this, right? These are important things to look at. In Titus chapter 1, Paul speaks of professing believers who are in reality, if you can imagine, false teachers, they profess to know God, Paul says, but by their deeds, they deny him. So the idea is at one point, these men must have intellectually believed in the gospel of Jesus, but they didn't continue in that truth. And they became self-absorbed, and Paul reports that they ended up teaching false things out of a desire for dishonest gain. You're like, how can that be? How can somebody begin in the faith and fall away as a leader, as a teacher, fall away so far that they begin to teach false things out of a desire to gain things dishonestly. Oh, man, we see it all the time, don't we? So listen, these aren't just theoretical ideas on a flat piece of paper from the first century. This happens today to very real people. I have personally witnessed these types of cases in my life many times over. People that I've ministered to, even here at Oak Hill, People I've known for a long time, even decades. People that I've served alongside, yes, even leaders in the church who gave every outward perception of genuine saving faith and yet fell away. Walked away completely. Now, why did it happen? Well, each situation is unique at all. Each situation has its own individual circumstances, but in some cases, it was pure selfishness combined with fleshly desires, and a person just willfully decides that their sin is more valuable to them than Jesus, and they run off to, to indulge in it. 
On the other hand of the spectrum, you find that apathy becomes the driver. A person has a loss of passion for the things of God. And just over time, they slowly begin to drift towards worldly pursuits because they decide, you know what, I'm really more fulfilled by those things than I am by the things of God. But no matter the specific details, in each case, what was eventually uncovered was that these people never progressed in their faith. They never progressed. Mental assent to teachings, sure. Sure. But lived out, no. I mean, lived out externally in front of other people, yeah, mostly. But when nobody was looking, was it being lived out? No, it wasn't authentic. Was there real change in the heart? Turns out, no. They were living out a so-called Christian culture, but without the reality of conversion. We can do that. And most of these folks, and I, I flash back in my head, these people that I've known, they were very adept at saying all the right things at the right times and doing the things that were expected of a Christian, but doing it so well that they're actually able to hide in plain sight without ever being regenerated. It was a counterfeit faith. And over time, that was revealed. Because the true believer perseveres to the end, right? If they fall away, what does John say? They were never of us, right? So let me remind you again of a pattern that Jesus consistently followed, and we've seen it already in John's gospel. We see it here in John 8. Let me say it again. Jesus' goal was not to build a huge following. It was not his goal. He wasn't interested in multiplying converts if their belief wasn't genuine. So he's not shy about using his words to divide people, to divide the sheep from the goats, and to unmask those who say they believe but don't really. Now, he has the benefit of knowing the hearts of the people. I don't have that. Neither do you. But he's not shy about saying, true, false, sheep, goat. You profess it, but you don't live it. He's not shy at all about that. And listen, we've not done that very well in the American church, have we? We've not really followed the example of our Lord. The American church has all about, been about what's big and what looks successful in an external way, even if it comes at the cost of sort of looking the other way from sin and from, from counterfeit faith. And we say that we love God and we love people, but it's not loving God or loving people to refuse to call out falsehood or to refuse to hold to sound biblical theology. We've not loved God or people when we've failed to deal with open rebellion even in our own churches. We're not loving God or loving people when the, when the church chases after every cultural trend and it gets tossed to, to and fro by every wind of doctrine to the point where the church isn't even recognizable when you hold it up to scripture. So what does the world think of when they hear the word church today? Have you ever thought about that? If I throw the word church out there, what does the world think? I mean, they've got, the, the spectrum is crazy, right? You've got fundamentalist churches where you've got a guy in a suit and tie pounding on a pulpit, talks about hell each and every week, all the way to gay-affirming churches where the, the minister is a lesbian. And they all say we're the church. Honestly, if I were standing on the outside looking in, and somebody said, what do you think the church is? I don't even know. It just looks confusing and hypocritical. Isn't that true? The point being this, Jesus was always rightly concerned about counterfeit faith. 
in his community. And we should be concerned as well. Okay, I know it's quiet in here now. But these are serious things, aren't they? Let's go back to verse 31. Let's look at look what Jesus said to this, this crowd of Jews in the temple courts. He said, the truth will make you free. He said to them. What, so by saying that, what is he implying about them? That they're not free at the present moment. That they're slaves to something. And trust me, the Jewish crowd understood the implication because look at their answer in verse 33. They answered, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? If you lift that off the page, it's a pretty aggressive response. They're not happy about this implication that Jesus has thrown out there. So they snap back at him. The suggestion that they've ever been enslaved. Now, if they were thinking politically, that's a ridiculous statement, isn't it? If they're just thinking governmentally or politically, that's a stupid statement because the Jews have been slaves going back more than 1,500 years at this point, right? Way back to Egypt, don't forget Babylon, uh, under occupation under the Greeks, and now as they're, it's so funny, as they're talking in the temple courts, if they just looked up, there's a Roman garrison watching them. (laughs) They are in subjugation to Rome at this point. Now, they're not slaves in the technical sense, but they're certainly not free either, So this crowd is not thinking politically, they're thinking spiritually. We're not spiritually enslaved, and in a sense, they're right, right? When you belong to Yahweh, you are spiritually free, even if you're politically subjugated. That is true. We know that because of the church today, right? There are churches in communist countries. There are churches in Muslim countries, and guess what? They're politically subjugated, but in Christ, they're powerful and free. Can we affirm that? Amen. But here's where the Jews had it wrong in their response to Jesus. They hadn't taken sin into account. That's where they missed it. They hadn't taken their sin into account. Apart from Jesus, they were slaves to sin. Jesus is about to talk about that, but first, look at what exactly the Jews are trusting in here. Number one, they thought they were free because they had the right bloodline, because they're descended from Abraham, and therefore they believe themselves to be automatic heirs to spiritual life. Think about that. Doesn't matter what I do, my bloodline is correct, my ethnicity is correct, therefore I'm an automatic heir to spiritual life. Number two, it was common in Judaism to think that the mere possession of the law made you free. And even more so, if you studied it, you were made a free man. That's what's going through their head. And we, it's hard for us 2,000 years later to imagine just how strong this impulse was for the Jews to trust in their ethnicity in their national heritage. So much so that you might recall in our Roman study, Paul had to start out virtually from the beginning in chapter two to deal with this very issue. Let me just remind you what he wrote in Romans two. He challenged his brothers and sisters who Paul greatly loved, right? He greatly loved them. And this is a mark of biblical writers. When you greatly love somebody, you warn them. Let me say that again. If you greatly love somebody, you warn them about their spiritual peril. Paul said this, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and look at this list of things, and you know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, 
Man, you just laid a whole bunch of things on them, right? You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? He goes on. You boast in the law. Though through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Catch the big idea. By your life, you prove that you're not really a Jew. By your life, you prove that you are not chosen of God. So when Jesus challenged the status of these Jews in the temple courts on this day as free men, their reaction wasn't, hey, Jesus, we don't really understand what you're saying. Tell us more. That was not their reaction. Their reaction is, we're not slaves. We don't need you. We're good. Arrogant and prideful. They look at this rabbi and this teacher standing before them and they can't see any way that this guy is somehow essential to their freedom. We don't need a savior. We don't need a doctor. We're not sick and we're not lost. We don't need you. Now it's interesting. Jesus just said to them, you're my disciples if you continue in my word. But by that hostile reaction, they demonstrate that they're not interested in continuing in his teaching. And therefore, we learn right here, it's, this lets us know these are not genuine disciples. They're not interested in continuing in his word. Now, here comes the hard truth in verse 34. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, how much? How many people? Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now, with Christian hindsight, we know that's true. It's very obvious to, uh, to us today because we're all sitting with New Testaments in our lap, right? It's easy for us. We know that the source of slavery is found within us, in our fallen nature. It's rooted deep in the heart of every man and every woman. We know that. We know that it produces ungodly wants and desires within us. We know that it wants us to shun God. It wants us to be the Lord of our own lives, to, to pick our own path. It makes everything around us look more desirable than Jesus, and eventually that slavery condemns us to hell. We know all that to be true, but that is not the way the Jews in Jesus' day understood it. And that's what we have to make sure we understand. They should have been aware of these things because they had God's law, but they weren't. Well, why? Because their shepherds had failed them. The teachers of the law had failed the people. The people weren't being taught the whole point of the law, which was to show them that they couldn't measure up to God's law. They weren't being taught that the daily sacrifices that they thought took away their sin were meant to point them to the ultimate Lamb of God who would take away sin forever. That's not what they were being taught. They weren't being taught that it was God's mercy alone that could save them. Instead, they were being told over and over again that salvation and freedom is found A, in your ethnic identity, and B, in the law of Moses. You're fine. You're good. You don't need anything else. And what they had failed to come to grips with is that inherently, by our nature, all of humanity falls short of the glory of God. And that the continuing practice of sin enslaves us all the more. It's like a, a snowball rolling downhill, isn't it? Every time we practice sin, we become more and more enslaved to it. See, it turns out their master isn't Caesar, and they're not in slavery to Rome. Their master is their own sinful desires, and they're enslaved by their moral failure in failing to keep the law but they don't see it. 
They've been failed by their, by their shepherds. And then Jesus delivers the bombshell in verse 35. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. Now, little insight there. My guess is that with Abraham having been brought up, it's likely in this moment that the Jews in this crowd are thinking of the story of Ishmael. Think of the parallels here. Recall that Isaac was the son of Sarah. He's the child of promise, but Ishmael, also a son of Abraham, has as his mother, who? Hagar, the Egyptian, and she's a slave. Ishmael is not the son of promise, and the Jews have always leaned on that truth, right? We're the, we're the chosen people from the line of Isaac. We're not from that pagan Ishmael. And as the story goes in Genesis 21, Ishmael is expelled from Abraham's household, right? He's sent off into the wilderness with his mother, Hagar, the slave. So think about that now. Now you've got Jews in the temple courts listening to this teaching from Jesus, hearing him talk about slaves and sons and who remains in the household and who doesn't. And they're thinking, well, we're Isaac. We're sons, So I don't know what this mess is you're talking about. We're Isaac. We're not Ishmael. And Jesus warns them. Yeah, you're in God's household now, but like Ishmael, you are the slave because of your sin. And as you know, slaves don't enjoy the full privileges of sons. They can be expelled from the household at any time. Imagine how hard this would have been for this group of Jews to hear. Wait, we're Ishmael? This would have been brutal. Now, realize Jesus isn't saying hard things just to insult them, right? He's saying hard things out of a desire to see this people awakened to the truth. See, we have so misdefined love. Love is not talking about hard things. Love is not dealing with the fact that you're in deep trouble. It's better to just gloss over it. Jesus says hard things because he wants to awaken people. Your eternal destiny is hanging by a thread. You are Ishmael because of sin, and you don't see it. He was willing to do the hard thing for the purpose of separating light from darkness and truth and falsehood. That is the loving thing to do. And then Jesus brings it back to his invitation. Look what he says in verse 36. Look what he's able to do for anyone who will continue in his word. If the Son sets you free, you really will be free. The truth is, if you look at a household in the first century, a slave couldn't make somebody a son. Slaves can't free other slaves. Only a son in God's household can do that. If the son sets you free, then you become an adopted child of God. You remain in his house forever as a true heir to all that the father has. But a slave can't do that, only the son. And that's where true freedom is found. Freedom indeed, as we know it, right? The best way to understand that is freedom in its fullest, me- fullest measure. And who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? Because the freedom that, that Jesus offers is spiritual freedom from the bondage of sin, from a lifestyle of habitual lawlessness. He offers that. But not only that, he offers freedom from the penalty that sin brings, freedom from condemnation, freedom from the wrath of God. That's what Jesus means. Free indeed, free from all of those things. It's exactly what he meant. You remember how when he went to the synagogue in, in Nazareth and he, he read from the book of Isaiah and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Here's what he said. 
The Lord has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. To free them from the bondage of sin. To free them from condemnation. To free them from the penalty in God's wrath. The Lord has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. That's what he meant. It's right here in John 8. So for the true disciple, and that is the key part of this text, for the true disciple, Jesus freed us from the curse of sin by becoming a curse for us. And he freed us from the domination of sin in our lives by changing our nature at its root through the new birth. And then he gave us his spirit to guide us into all truth and to sanctify us. And so in him and by his grace, you and I, if you're found in Jesus, are free indeed. We are completely free. That's good news, folks. Now, let's drop back and look again about, at, at what Jesus says marks out a true disciple because this is really important. This is where it gets really practical and for some of us really hard. What marks out a true disciple? I want everybody here this morning to either be assured of your saving faith or to be awakened to the truth that you're not saved. No middle ground here, right? Let's go back to verse 31. If you continue in my word, Jesus said, then you are truly disciples of mine. And if you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and it's that truth that will make you free. See how that plays out? So the mark of a genuine saving faith is not just intellectual agreement. Oh, I believe this set of facts. Oh, I've read a systematic theology, and I, I agree with all those doctrines. It's insufficient for salvation. It's a great start. Don't get me wrong, I love me some doctrine. But it's insufficient for eternal life. Saving faith isn't living a particular lifestyle either. This is where I think most people in the church who are deceived, they fall into this. If I just live a Christian lifestyle, if I just show myself to be like everybody else, then I'm okay. That's not what it is either. Christian culture cannot transform a heart. Being a true disciple is marked by continuing in Jesus' word, continuing in all, the, in all the things that Jesus had claimed about himself and about his Father, continuing in the grace of God and the truth of this thing that we know as the gospel. Now, in the original Greek, the verb there for continue is meno. It's often translated abide or remain. So that's important to see that, to abide in my word, to remain in my word. It's what separates temporary superficial faith from the real thing, right? The true believer perseveres in the faith to the very end. This idea in Scripture in the New Testament of present tense being saved is very important. We're being saved, and what eventually really saves us is we die in faith. It's a present tense thing. He or she remains with Jesus, he or she abides or dwells with Jesus, not as an occasional guest, but as a member of the family. Perseveres, remains, abides in Jesus' word. And the true disciple takes up his or her cross and dies to self in order to joyfully follow the master's instructions and commands. Perfectly, no. But that's always the heart of a true disciple, to pursue what the master says is good, to pursue and to seek out what the master says we ought to do. It's a life commitment, isn't it? 
Listen, being a Christian is an all or nothing proposition, is it not? Right? I mean, is anybody, are we wavering this morning? It's an all or nothing proposition. Paul supported this. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you, look at the words now, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also are, you are saved. That's present tense, being saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Catch the details there in those two verses. Paul challenges the believers in Corinth to go down this list of things. Do I agree with this? So I would say to you guys this morning, do you agree with this? First of all, have you received the gospel that was preached to you? Second, have you taken your stand on it? In other words, man, you put a stake in the ground and you said, this is everything and I will not budge. Have you taken your stand on it? Third, do you have assurance that you are being saved? Present tense. Being saved through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Have you personally appropriated those things for yourself? Made it your own in a personal way. And then fourth, this is where Paul's language lines up exactly with what Jesus said. Are you currently holding fast or continuing in that truth? Present tense right now, are you holding fast or continuing in that truth? If not, Paul says, you believe in vain. This is worthless. You should go home or reconsider. But it's in vain. So test yourself this morning. What's the real truth in your heart? What does your life say? And you know what, this may be just a really good thing. I know that when I was younger, I know that's hard to believe when I was in my 20s, and I had some really close brothers in the Lord, it was constantly, well, what does your life say? It wasn't just blah, 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 just verbally what comes out of our mouths, because we could, we could tell when we, each other were lying, like, you're lying. <laughs> what does your life say? How are you loving your wife? How are you loving your kids? How are you serving in the church? What's your study time look like with the Lord? What's your prayer life about? What does your life look like? Does it match up with what you say, what you think about your faith? Man, I saw such a vivid example of this week, and I, it's just one example that I could point to, but maybe you guys saw it. It, it. If it wasn't so hypocritical, it would be funny. And there's been so many of these things. The mayor of San Francisco, who recently laid down a mask mandate on the entire city, said, Anytime you go indoors, you've got to wear a mask. It's a burden, but people have said, okay, all right, that's what we got to do. Laid the mandate out. And then a week later, what happens? She's caught on an iPhone, partying at a nightclub, singing with her friends, no mask on. And so people rightly look at that and say, she doesn't believe it. She doesn't believe that masks are important. She doesn't believe that masks work. Otherwise, she'd wear a mask. She doesn't believe it because she doesn't live it out. We all said that when we saw the pictures. Now, what about your faith? If we don't actually live out what we claim, how can we say that we believe it? It's not that it's really hard to understand, right? It's not that it's too complicated or hidden from view. We've all heard the gospel. It's been very clear we know what Jesus requires of his disciples. The problem, of course, is our hearts. Who rules your heart? 
So listen, I've said some hard things this morning, right? Hard things. And I've been intentionally hard on anybody here today who doesn't possess saving faith. And I'm convinced that if, if Jesus could walk in that door, he would do the same thing. It's the loving thing to do. To challenge you, if you don't possess saving faith, wake up. Your eternal destiny is at stake. For those of you who have passed the, the test of saving faith, you're found in Christ this morning. First of all, I praise God for that. It's his work and his work alone, amen? But I'll remind you that you receive the gospel by his grace alone. I want to remind you that you stand in the gospel by his grace alone. I want to remind you that you're being saved, present tense, by his grace alone, and that even your continuing in Jesus' word is by grace alone. So we worship him this morning for that, right? We praise his name for his kindness to us. His mercies for his children are new every morning. But brothers and sisters, I'm gonna leave you with this challenge. We live in really un, in uncertain times right now, don't we? The last 18 months to two years have been very, very difficult. But it's time to shake the cobwebs off. I'm gonna be honest with you. It's time to shake it off. It's time to start realizing what's really happening in our world. It's time to stop living inconsistently as believers. Oh, I profess this, but I, I kind of do this. It's time to stop living inconsistently. It's time to stop prioritizing all these worldly pursuits above the things of God. It's time to put off selfish living. The end draws near. Every day we get closer, right? I'm not setting a date. I'm just telling you every day we get closer. And every day we see the world unraveling. So why are we stuck in this place of cobwebs right now? Why are we stuck in this place of sort of apathy as the church? It's time to recommit ourselves to a life that matches our profession of faith. To a life that says to the world, I truly believe this. I really believe that this is the truth. Will you join me in that? Let's pray about it. Jesus, I am grateful that you set a pattern for us in speaking both grace and truth, extending grace to all those who would come to you, but then speaking hard truths as well to those who rejected you. So Lord, we want to be faithful here at Oak Hill to, to preach that in balance, to always talk about the goodness of your grace, but also to challenge everybody in this room to test themselves, to do self-examination, to make sure that we are in possession of this saving faith, which is so precious. So Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that we would continue in that. As we continue in your word, that we would continue in self-examination, and Lord, that we would always come to the conclusion that all of it is true because of your goodness to us, and that because of that, we would be living sacrifices to you that you would make these truths real in our lives. Do that this week for us, Lord. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.